Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Beat, a podcast which brings together the journalists and reporters who cover Arsenal on a regular basis. This is our second special episode and we seem to have timed it to perfection. Welcome to the ostracising of Meza Ozil. I'm Sam Dean of The Telegraph and alongside Mark Van Bryans from PA Media, we will be joined by journalists across the world as we go right back to when Ozil joined Arsenal and look at how his relationship with the club ultimately turned sour. We are going to begin by heading back to the summer of 2013 and hearing from The Guardian's Nick Ames, who was working for the Arsenal media team at the time of Ozil's arrival, leaving just two weeks later when it was clear North London was not big enough for the two of them. It's been um, a weird summer for Arsenal. There have been a lot of failed activity in the transfer market. I, I must say failed, a lot of strenuous activity in the transfer market. They tried it, I think, for Rooney. They tried very hard for Suarez in the famous what are they smoking over uh, the Emirates deal with, with the extra one pound. Um, and obviously they went in for, for Higuain as well. Now, those deals didn't come off, but they did say one thing between them, which was that Arsenal now had the resources and the money and the firepower to do stuff that they hadn't been able to do whatsoever in the previous, well, let's think, five or six or or seven years, and there um, definitely been a feel like I I think it was about a year before that that Wenger had um, had said his and I'm paraphrasing slightly fourth place is a trophy speech, which drew a lot of division at, um, at the time, but it would feel like one now, wouldn't it? Um, and, and I think there was just a sense that the club had been trying to drag itself through, drag itself through the property situation with, with, with the Highbury flats, trying, trying to drag itself through creating a new commercial approach with a lot of Far East activity in the, in, and in the States and, and quite lucrative pre-season tours had started and that kind of thing. And they, they were trying to pull themselves financially from one era into the next. And obviously there'd been a lot of reliance on younger players and Wenger not wanting to kill Danielson and Song and that kind of thing and, and, and not paying the money for Javi Alonso. Lots of, lots of different factors where people, you know, outside the club especially, I, I think were quite frustrated by the lack of ambition shown without maybe being aware that the resources, certainly in comparison to at the time, clubs like Chelsea and, and, and City were not even there. So I think what those deals that didn't come off necessarily said was, okay, Arsenal have now got the resources to really push at this. And then it all came down to, to I think, um, September the 1st, and there was um, a game, um, game against Spurs, and I think they, um, they, they won 1-0 with a, it was a nice little flick from Giroud, wasn't it, of a near post. And I think Spurs had sold bail, but they brought in like Ericsson and Lamella. And I think I think Lamella came off the bench that day. And they're clearly, you know, there was a bit of a sense of invigoration and freshness about who Spurs had, um, had, had brought in. So the question was whether Arsenal could, in the following 24 hours, get that name in, set the place alight. And I remember Matthew Flamini had um, come, come back in on a free transfer for Arsenal and Wenger saying afterwards, after the Spurs game, oh, I'm sorry, he didn't cost 25 million in a, a sentiment that he would echo later, I think, talking about Rob Holding not, cost, um, not costing 55 million. He quite liked that one. But clearly he was managing expectations a, a little bit because noises began to grow and a buzz began to grow that day, that evening, that something was going to happen, that it could be Mesut Ozil, that something special might be around the corner. 
and then the following day they pulled it off. I think it was announced in the evening, wasn't it? Quite, quite, quite late at night as, as these things happen. And it was certainly a feeling that this was Arsenal at the Emirates 2.0, the next phase. And I was always was going to get them ready for that. I think um, I, um, I think around the club at the time, just being inside and around the place, I, I think it did put smiles on faces and it did put springs in steps. It, it did feel like a bit of a release, to be honest, I think, in, internally and a kind of justification and, and vindication for what the approach had been in previous years and for a lot of the work, which I alluded to earlier, um, that did go on behind the scenes. Um, whether they actually needed Ozil, a creative midfielder, having previously gone in for, for, um, for three attacking, well, strikers, forwards that we mentioned earlier, I'm not sure, but it was more about the symbolism of it, I think, that was important. Did they have the team really to build Ozil around? I don't know that either. But he came in, start, start, um, started fairly well. I, I don't remember it being explosive, but fitting neat, neatly enough, I, I think they came fourth that season um, again. Um, and I think, it, um, I think at the time, as he grew into that side, I think it was more about the symbolism almost of this is what Arsenal can now do, having not been able to do it for so long. And I think it, 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 it did have, um, have an important impact and it really did, did perk up the outlook around a club that had felt like it was stagnating a bit at the time in the previous two or three years. I mean, you look at, at the other signings in that particular transfer window, I think it was Flamini, I think Yaya Sanogo came in I think um, Viviano, the keeper, turned up, um, maybe I'm the same day as Urza, I, I can't quite remember, that's a, it's not quite Richard Wright and Sol Campbell that, is it? Um, but, um, uh, so it was important, really important that they got that over the line, but the whole summer had been building up to, um, to, to, to something like that, I think. I think what's clear when you listen to Nick there is that it was definitely heralded around the club, not just supporters and, and those that are outside the club, but Nick was inside the club. And it's very clear that it was he was heralded as this new dawn. Oza was this new dawn. We, we finally landed a big one after years of having to nurture their own talent and sell them on and things like that. And it, it was definitely seen as this watershed moment. The club in particular, wasn't it, I think? Yeah, absolutely. And also... We, we shouldn't forget just how good Ozil had been for Real Madrid, where he clocked up all sorts of assists, formed a great relationship with some of their best players. And also, I think the 2010 World Cup was still quite fresh in people's minds because of how well he had played, particularly against England, when he essentially retired Gareth Barry from international duty. And this guy was a real world beater, and Arsenal had not been signing those for a long time. And to, to get him in meant a lot for the fans and for the club, as, as Nick said. And what we saw then definitely was was a few years at least of, of achievement, if you like. He, he won some FA Cups, there were some magical moments and he very much developed into a key member of Arsene Wenger's squad and that saw him become one of the stars of the club. Uh, senior football writer for ESPN, James Ollie, has been across Ozil's story since day one and we will hear from him throughout the show but here he is to explain the decision taken to then pay Ozil £350,000 a week. Well, the mood at the club at that time was tense, um, particularly because although Sanchez and Ozil had different uh, representatives, 
they were essentially working in tandem. They, they, you know, they were quite close uh, off the pitch. Um, they were clearly the two standout talents in that team at the time. And they were both acutely aware that they had the advantage in the negotiations. And if they worked together, they were even stronger in that regard. So, you know, you got to remember that this was in a, in a period where a lot of the contracts were running down. Arsenal had been criticised for years for allowing players to either leave for nothing or leave um, for a fraction of their actual market value because they'd got to the final year of their deal or they were they were compromised in terms of the, the contract length. And they were looking like this was going to happen again with, as I say, not only the two best talents in in, uh, in the Arsenal squad, but arguably the two best talents or certainly two of the best talents in the Premier League at that time. You know, it's easy to think about Sanchez and Ozil the last couple of years and how they've sort of their stars have fallen. But back then they were they were right, you know, they were asking for the top salary in the Premier League, which is about 290, I think, at the time that Pogba was on. They were asking for north of that, and it felt justified because they were, you know, they were performing at the level of you know the very best. Um, obviously, what happened then was Sanchez left and joined United, and really that I think. In the wider context of of, of the, the the contractual situations with other players in the past, also if you think, I think it was a year or so early that, that Ivan Gazidis, the chief executive at the time, had talked about this escalation of financial firepower that they were going to be able to compete again after years of um, of having to be frugal in the market and with contracts because of paying down the debt, driving down the debt on the stadium move. So it really reached a point of uh, critical mass where. They, they had to act and, um, you know, they were, they were doing that in some regards. They'd obviously, they, they'd broken the club record to sign Lacazette. They then signed Aubameyang in, earlier in that window. Um, they'd got Mkhitaryan in, which again, in hindsight, looked like a bit of disaster. But at the time, it felt like, you know, sort of mitigating uh, the loss of Sanchez reasonably well, actually, um, for, a, you know, a talented player who, you know, who would fill a, fill a gap in the squad. And signing Ozil... Again, it wasn't quite the statement that it was when they got him in 2013, but it felt like, and particularly at that financial level, it felt as though this is finally backing up the rhetoric with action. And it was a deal that um, that, that Gazidis um, worked very hard on and, and, and ultimately sanctioned with, with the board. Um, Arsene Wenger was obviously influential in that. I think it's been clear to see how things have played out since then, that the, the relationship between... Arsene and, and, and Meza Ozil was, was really important, really close. Uh, he was a key reason why Ozil came to the club in the first place. Um, and he was clearly a key factor in, in committing what should have been the best years of his, of his career to the club. The timing of that deal, uh, their second contract that Ozil signed in January 2018, came obviously just a few months before uh, the World Cup and Ozil's very rocky relationship with the German national side, which was obviously a difficult time for him and for everyone involved. And, and here, the Athletics' Raphael Honigstein will give us an outline of his career with the German national team and talk through what went on in that fateful summer, which seemed to have such a big impact on Ozil and everything else going forward. I think Mesut Ozil will forever be connected to the rebirth of German football, especially the German national team in 2010 with German players having very different second names, uh, playing a style that had really evolved and thrilling 
uh, a lot of neutrals at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. I think that was probably Mesut Ozil's highlight as far as the national team was concerned. He had wonderful games against England, against Argentina. And 2012, when Germany felt that they should really win the competition, it sort of fell apart a little bit, but not, not down to him. 2014, he was an important part of the team, but the way that the tactical changes worked out with Germany reverting to a 4-3-3, he didn't necessarily have a natural position in the team anymore. And he was more used as a player to, to keep the ball, to progress the ball rather than to be the telling uh, player in the final third. And I think he'd had a, a pretty discreet uh, World Cup, very important, I think, in terms of Germany's possession game, but not the pivotal player anymore. And then, of course, um, 2018, we all know what happened. 2016, he, he had a decent uh, Euros as well, but ultimately overshadowed by the fact that Germany got knocked out in the semi-finals. So I think they will remember him as, as a really important player in that period for Germany. I think they will, will remember him as the guy who helped Germany win the World Cup. But I guess in the end, other players will be more at the forefront of people's minds, the likes of Schweinsteiger, Lahm, Müller, simply because I think he was peripheral towards the latter stages and not such a key figure at the World Cup itself in Brazil. I think Mesut Ozil, because of the way he played, always divided opinion, even in Germany, but perhaps to a lesser extent than he did at Arsenal. I think the reason for that is that whenever he did play, most of the time he played really well, and there were very few incidents where people would blame him personally for defeats. In 2012, it was a debate, but even then, most people thought that Jogi Löw had made a mistake by the way he set up his team against Italy in the semi-final. So there weren't that many fingers um, directed at him. There was a bit of a campaign from Bill who wondered whether Germany would have done better if everyone had sung the national anthem. Um, that was a bit of a dog whistle directed at him and others. But I'm not sure that really represented the widespread view of, of supporters. I'm sure there are some who, um, a fringe minority, who never quite fully accepted him. But I'd like to think that these guys were very much in a minority. Um, so I think if there was any division, if there was any rancor, it was more to do with, I think, the way he played football, with people finding it perhaps harder to accept when Germany lost and he had a guy who didn't seem to sweat on the pitch. Um, something that I think Arsenal fans would be well familiar with. Ozil's friendship with President uh, Recep Erdogan goes back a few, a few years and when Erdogan came to London in May of 2018, he was happy to meet up with him, pose with him for photos, exchange shirts along with Ilkay Unduan, and didn't think too much of it. But this happened at a time when the relationship between Germany and Turkey was in an all-time low. Erdogan had cracked down on thousands and thousands of people after an um, attempted coup against him. And that included journalists, that included people with dual citizenship. Uh, Germans were in jail without trial for months on end. And he was widely seen as, as a dictator beyond the pale at that point. 
So for a German international player to pose with him, somebody who on the face of it looked to be violating um, a lot of principles that this German team supposedly stand for when it comes to human rights, tolerance, um, acceptance, all these things was just a very, very bad look. It was then politicized as well because built the biggest tabloid in Germany, made, made a huge thing of it. Also at a time when the after effect of the uh, migration um, crisis or my big migration story of the summer before were being felt in Germany, there was a huge debate about the influx of foreigners, of, of uh, Muslims in particular. And I think it was used to kind of suggest between the line, dog, dog whistle style, that Uzil and Gundogan weren't quite fully German by meeting with the president of another country and treating him so uh, devoutly and, and even saying that, you know, he's our president, etc. So I think it was all very, very, very ugly. Uh, the German FA for a long time, I think, underestimated the fallout, tried to, tried to bury, the, bury the story. They then hastily arranged a meeting with a German president, which just looked staged. Um, and in the end, Gundogan's form really suffered and, and Mesut Uzo's form wasn't right either. Whether that was for that reason or not, we don't know. But um, it turned out that neither were in a position to really help Germany at the World Cup. Um, I don't think it's the reason necessarily that Germany had such a bad World Cup. I don't think people actually blame Mesut Oilkai personally for Germany crashing out. I think the blame is, is more being put at um, Joachim Löw's feet. But of course, it left a very sour taste and then it led to Mesut Özil resigning, um, alleging that within the German FA, and he was really talking about the president of the German FA, he didn't feel backed and he felt that he was being treated uh, differently than others and that he was effectively being um, racially uh, discriminated against because, because of his background. The way that that open letter was phrased, I think then led to misunderstandings and recriminations from former teammates who felt personally attacked, who said there was no racism within the camp. I don't know what he's talking about. So there was a lot of misunderstanding, um, you know, people perhaps not willing to see the problem or, or not being empathetic enough or feeling that they were being, were being tarred with that same brush. And it all ended very, very, very badly and very sadly. Um, so I think it's, it's a big shame that one of the most talented players of his generation felt he had to take that step um, so early on in his career. It's good to hear from someone like Raphael about the, the Germany situation because it is one of those that we like to pretend that we know everything that's going on in the, in the world of football, but he, he was obviously across most of those World Cups, most of the situations that were happening. And as we would see later at Arsenal, Ozil was very much a man who stands up for what he believes in and feels strongly about. And those feelings grew during a cultural awakening. And our very own Sam Dean wrote a, a fantastic piece about this a few years ago. And, uh, and here he goes in depth about what that meant. So Raph Honigstein spoke there about the 
the Erdogan relationship and, and that famous picture before the 2018 World Cup. And I think that really is, can be seen as a, a turning point in, in Ozil's sort of life, not just on the pitch, but off it. And the sort of cultural awakening that he went through in that period. And um, in August 2019, I, I travelled to Devrek, which is a small town in the Zonguldak province of Turkey. And that's where the Ozil family originates. His, his grandparents left there in the 1960s, went, went to Turkey, went from Turkey to Germany, sorry. Um, it's not a particularly glamorous place, as you can imagine. I, funnily enough, I actually got my hair cut at Turkish barbers before lockdown, and uh, I mentioned I'd been to Zonguldak, and all of the guys in there were Turkish, and they, they started laughing and saying that no one ever goes to Zonguldak. So it so, sort of it was an insight into uh, what kind of place it is. But in, in the town of Devrek, there's a, there's a road there called Meza Erzul Kadesi, which translates as Meza Erzul Avenue, um, which is essentially a, a tribute to their favourite grandson. And um, on the road, there's this huge billboard with a picture of him on it. And that picture used to be Erzul in a Germany shirt. And then it got replaced after the Erdogan picture with that picture of him with the Turkish, with, with Erdogan. And um, that was quite, quite symbolic, really, because Essentially, Ozil spent his whole life, um, seemingly based on what he said and what he's written and speaking to people around him, having to wrestle with this dual identity he has in which so many people, uh, children of immigrants or grandchildren of immigrants, will have experienced across Europe, if not the whole world. And that, for that, his entire adult life, um, through no choice of his own, he's been seen as a symbol, really. Um, and for most of his professional career, that by all accounts was a responsibility he did not want and a weight that never really sat comfortably on his on his shoulders um, now when I went to Devrek I spoke to the cousin of Ozil's father and he said that in that part of Turkey they absolutely love Ozil for what he represents and who he is and his success but it wasn't always that the case for him and he's he said before Ozil I said before that growing up he really struggled for acceptance sort of First in Germany, he felt maligned and sort of sidelined for being Turkish. And then in Turkey, he was for years derided as a sort of German sympathizer, as somebody who'd turned his back on his on his Turkish upbringing. And you can imagine how difficult and sort of conflicting that must be for someone, especially as they're trying to navigate all the wealth and fame and power that comes with being a professional footballer, and especially someone who, like Mesut Ozil, is quite a naturally introverted and timid character. I mean, a former teacher once described him as a little bit autistic and he's always struggled a bit socially. And the guys who cover Arsenal will know that he, he's never ever spoken in, in the mix zone as far as I'm aware. And partly because he doesn't want to and partly because I was told he finds it very uncomfortable speaking to cameras and being in front of that environment. Doesn't He, he, does, he does not like that. Whereas some players as ego-driven uh, successful athletes don't mind that at all in fact some of them quite enjoy it and and if you look at that conflict in his in his in his character and identity I mean Ozil only spoke Turkish until the age of four and he said in his autobiography that having to read aloud in German at school was was pure torture in his words and uh, at first he was rejected from academies in Germany Schalke said no to him and he said and obviously he was brilliant at that age, but it, he said it, it seemed to me as if a Matthias or a Marcus was always preferred to me, um, speaking in relation to the fact that he felt essentially discriminated against for being um, part Turkish. He, 
he was very young, Ozil. He was still, I think, in his teens when he had to decide whether to represent Germany or, or Turkish at youth levels. And when he chose Germany, he had to surrender his Turkish passport at the country's consulate, which is a very strange thought. You know, that's, that's a very uh, literal um, sort of manifestation of having to pick one side of your identity, which is a very awkward thing to do, obviously. At first, the officials at the Turkish embassy or consulate, they, they refused to help him. And then they decried him as a traitor who was sort of abandoning his homeland. And over the next few years, he became this poster boy within Germany for multiculturalism and integration. And after a match against Turkey once, Angela Merkel, she walked into the Germany dressing room and out of nowhere took a picture with Ozil. He wasn't aware of this. He didn't know this was coming, but suddenly he, his story had been sort of seized upon by other people. And he was made and painted out to be this, I think they called him the multi-culti, multicultural sort of poster boy. He doubled down and suddenly before you know it, he was getting married in Istanbul with with Erdogan there was the, the lead witness of the ceremony. He wrote once that he had, uh, in that statement, he wrote that he had two hearts, one German and one Turkish. And I put in this piece that I wrote that it was of those two hearts, it's pretty clear that the, the Turkish side beats the strongest now. And I think that's certainly the case. And you can see the the posturing in recent weeks and recent days about Fenerbahce and everything going on there. And it seems to me like Ozil has had this cultural awakening and he's become so much more strong-minded and strong-willed in himself as a person. And I think that's a really fascinating part of his character that so many people overlook. And I think for all the talk about his attitude, his money, his approach to training and the issues he's had with so many coaches, the three coaches now at Arsenal, I think for years to come, he will be looked at, looked back on as so much more than a player, as... as as someone whose story really painted a picture of what was going on in mainland Europe at this time when he was growing up. And that was something that he, as far as I could see, was never comfortable with until recently. And now suddenly he owns that narrative and he owns that story. Retired from international football and with arguably his biggest supporter, Arsene Wenger, having departed the Emirates Stadium, Things were about to get tougher for Ozil under the new head coach, renowned taskmaster Unai Emery. Well, Ozil's relationship with, with Arsene Wenger was, and I believe still is, very good. Um, and although Wenger, Wenger's time at the club was clearly coming to an end, Gazidis had stripped back a lot of the power and authority that he'd had by appointing these nine new department heads and, and um, having extra voices in the mix with scouting and recruitment and all those sort of things. You know, it was still, it was still a seismic moment when Arsene left and um, you could argue that didn't hit anyone harder than, than Meza Ozil, um, particularly because there was this perception around the club at the time. I think rightly that standards had been allowed to slip. There was a, um, you know, a, a comfort about playing for Arsenal. It was almost a, an insulation that, that that Wenger brought himself. He was a lightning rod for criticism. He took it all on his shoulders. He took it away from the players. And the flip side of signing a £350,000 a week contract and playing every week is you've really got to deliver. And if the team starts underperforming, it's the natural course of events that, you, you know, you start looking at those key players 
and are they delivering are they you know are they ultimately value for money and and and, and as much of a stretch as that was for Arsenal well, not a stretch but sort of a, a break with previous convention um, to give him such a big contract you know he he still had to earn that money and um, one of the big things one of the reasons why they went with Unai Emery to succeed him was because he was he was the antithesis of Wenger in the sense of he wasn't prepared to allow things to drift on the training ground. And it was all about energy, pressing, intensity, passion, drive. And this is not to say that Meza Ozil doesn't have any of these things, but they don't manifest themselves in the most obvious way. And I think there was quickly a... Uh, I think two things happened. I think off the pitch, there wasn't this... Um, not protection, but there wasn't this sort of sense that Ozil was above the rest anymore or that you know a slip in in performance would be as tolerated as readily as it was by someone like Arsene Wenger who valued creativity who valued expressionism and appreciated that that didn't always come every game every week you know there were going to be lulls because you're asking a player to go and unlock a defense to to imagine to create to express you know, to ask someone to do that every single week, every time, it you know is is one of the toughest things players can do. Unai Emery, I think, was less um, tolerant of that. I think he expected more. Um, I'm not necessarily saying there was a personality clash, but I don't think they got on particularly well. And once he fell out of the team, he found it, I think, quite difficult to go from being the, the sort of talismanic you know, front and centre main man to being a guy who, you know, suddenly having his work ethic and his and his ability question, let's be honest. Um, and the style of play, this sort of trying to play out from the back, trying to, to press, trying to be sort of um, move away from that idea of go out and play, lads. It was trying to give a structure to the team. Didn't necessarily play to Ozil's strengths. And I think that there was a gradual erosion there over time, and I think if you looked at then at the players who were asked to come in and and, and work, and, and and try and get the team through difficult moments, there was maybe a, a sort of thought among some of them. Well, hang on a minute, why is this guy getting three hundred and fifty grand a week, um, and I'm getting a lot, lot less than that? And I know that in some of the subsequent contract negotiations, Özil's number kept that that figure kept coming up as a reference point. And over time, that contract gradually became a sort of noose around the neck of the club, really, because, uh, you know, and this isn't just internally, this would be signings they'd be looking at would be saying, well, he's getting that. So that's the starting point for negotiations. And and, and I think it, it just became, you know, almost a sort of hangover from a bygone era that, that they were trying to move on. They were trying to grow as a club. And here's them giving this big contract to this talismanic player and yet the two people who believed in that deal the most left within the space of four or five months Gazidis and Arsene Wenger and then you've got a new regime coming in trying to take the club forward in their own way and Ozil suddenly not part of that and the minute you're, you've not got your big money major um, sort of wage earner at the centre of that there's inevitably going to be a friction and, and really that relationship's never recovered. What I find to be a really interesting element of the Ozil and Emery relationship was that when Ozil first joined them on pre-season tour after the 
World Cup, which, as we know and as we've discussed, was very difficult for him. Emery said that we are like his home, we are like his family, we're going to help him feel good. Emery's initial plan was to make us feel as happy and comfortable as he had been under Arsene Wenger. And then obviously, as, as James touched on there, that changed quite quickly. And, and James used the key word there right at the end, I thought, which was friction. And Emery even said on the record, I believe, when he was asked directly about Ozil, said that he sometimes likes to create friction with players in order to get the best out of them and trigger some sort of response. And now if he thought that was going to work with Ozil, then he was clearly horrendously misguided. And if anything, it, it, it turned Ozil even further against the coach and his coaching staff. Yeah, exactly. And I think you talk about his, his relationship with Wenger is a big part of those first few years at Arsenal. Arsenal Wenger had gone by that point and would even later say himself that he felt that new deal that Ozil had signed left him in the comfort zone. And I think we all know it always felt like he was playing in a, with a little bit of comfort anyway. So to then be considered to be in this in this almost zone of comfort was, was a strange thing, wasn't it? And it's a little bit like when he originally signed it felt the contracts, everything was just the club's need to deliver something big. And it ended up, as James said, absolutely spot on. It just ended up hamstringing him for years to come, didn't it? Yeah. And we, and we saw, as soon as Emery went and Freddie Jumberg took over, suddenly Ozil was back in the team again, which was, a, you know, that's what the fans had been calling for. Well, a big section of the fans had been calling for. And suddenly he was back in and the thought was, oh, maybe he, maybe he is the man to turn this around. But within just a few weeks and a few games, Jumberg had bombed him out too. I think with a famous memory amongst us journalists is at Goodison Park when it was Jumberg's final game. It was it was actually after Arteta had been appointed the previous day and Urza wasn't available for some sort of minor fitness-related problem. Uh, Jumberg said completely unprompted out of the blue, he said, well, yes, but I wouldn't have picked him anyway based on his attitude. And I think that really summed it up. So Jumberg wasn't keen, Emery wasn't keen, and then Arteta took over, and Arteta, who'd played with Ozil, of course, at first, he was very keen on Ozil. And I think Ozil started the first 10 Premier League games under Arteta. But that, of course, changed dramatically after Project Restart, when Ozil did not feature at all and would ultimately be left out of the Premier League and Europa League squads for this current season. And now Arteta has always insisted that that decision was taken purely on footballing grounds. But as we all know, the discussion goes on. side that is just um, a football decision that my conscience is very calm because I've been really fair with him um, my level of communication with him has been really high we know what to expect with each other and when I believe that uh, he could contribute to the team to be better which is why I was hired to this football club to become the manager to win football matches competition and create and build a project for the short, medium and long term. He has had uh, the opportunities like everybody else. I'm sad that I had to leave uh, three players out of this list, which is never pleasant. But I just to have to say that I try to look at everybody in the eye and be comfortable with it. And with Mesut, I have this feeling because I was being very straightforward since I arrived to this club. That clip there from Mikel Arteta, if I'm, if I'm right in saying so, came pre-Rapid Vienna in the Europa League when Ozil had been left out of that squad. The Premier League squad, again, he would be left out of that. And it wasn't the only time Arteta was getting asked about Ozil on a weekly basis and was having to flat back a lot of stuff. 
and a few journalists got to speak to Edu a few weeks later, and he said the same thing. So it was clearly the party line that he was missing out because of football reasons. It's also abundantly clear that that's not true, and I think I think a lot of us knew that at the time, and that's why people continued to ask the question, hoping that you know they could crack the case almost. I think footballing reasons is a very wide uh, term um, in terms of are Arsenal a better team without Ozil even on the bench? I think it's a pretty hard thing to argue. You can't say that he wouldn't improve the team in certain situations given who he is. But if you're trying to rebuild a football culture, as Mikel Arteta is trying to do and as he's stated many times, you have to make a stand and it has to be a point of principle. And if, if Ozil isn't committing to certain elements of training, of the matches, of, of what, whatever Arteta wants to see, and that certainly seems to be true, that he wasn't giving or showing the attitude that Arteta expects, then I suppose that does fall under football reasons too. I mean, I find it interesting that, I mean, by, by all accounts, his effort levels in training have never been particularly high, even when he was playing at his peak. And I think he's even said so himself, but that's not the kind of player he is. Um, at the same time, I was told a few months ago that in training, when it comes to sort of five-a-side matches and keep ball sessions and training games, as you'd expect, Ozil has been one of the best performers because he's Meza Ozil and he is technically one of the most gifted players we've probably seen this in the last 20 years or so. So that makes sense. But there's much more to football and there's much more to Arteta's football than being able to play a lovely few passes and drop a shoulder quite nicely. So he needed to show more and clearly Arteta and Edu have made the point that he's not shown enough. Yeah, what on there, Sam. And, and one theory as to why Ozil found himself discarded centred around a social media post in which he criticised the treatment of Uyghurs in China, uh, something which would land him in hot water with the club. As Cameron Wilson, the founding editor of Wild East Football, continues the story. It was very obvious. I mean, for China, this is a red line. They've got their ideas about what constitutes China, what's their sovereignty, what they regard as their territory and their country. And... Anyone who speaks out about that, especially someone like uh, Ozil, who's a very high-profile sportsman, is going to incur China's wrath. Uh, so I wasn't surprised to see that he was pretty much ostracised. Uh, he was roundly criticised by pretty much everyone who I know who's uh, a football fan in China, which is quite a lot of people because I've been involved in Chinese football here for a while. So... It wasn't a surprise to me, and the reaction to me as somebody who's lived in China for 15 years not surprising. Basically, he's persona non grata now. Um, and the thing is, you have to understand is that I think most Chinese do actually think that Ozil was just completely wrong, that he doesn't understand the dynamics of what is happening in Xinjiang, and that he's either at best misguided or at worst think he's got some kind of agenda. Um, that is their, That is a pretty widely held opinion. Also, the other thing in China is that people generally don't have a lot of access to information from outside China about an alternative point of view. Um, and the official line in China is that there is no alternative point of view. So that is one part which explains the reaction, the, the reaction and the fairly uniform opinion about Ozil's, um, what Ozil said. The other thing as well is that 
in China, there's much more pressure than there is in a Western country to conform and to go along with what the mainstream opinion is. So that's part of it. Um, a lot of times in China, if you ask someone a question about something, especially something contentious, they'll just give you a standard answer. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. It's partly cultural, it's partly because people are kind of wary that if they say certain things, especially about something so sensitive as this, that they might get themselves into trouble. So that explains a lot of the reaction. If we look at our own countries like the USA and uh, uh, the UK or even European countries, we have an open platform for information, we have an open platform for news, there's alternative views, but you can still see a lot of people have some pretty wild opinions, as we've seen in recent times, especially in the in the USA recently. So when you think about that, I put it in that context, it's not just China where people can have views which seem completely at odds with people from other parts of the country or even other parts of the world. People having a certain point of view is not necessarily a result of being in an open news environment or not, put it that way. And that's not unique to China. I know that when Arsenal's games were broadcast on Chinese TV, they just didn't mention Ozo's name when he got the ball. It was really strange. Again, that's a cultural thing. It's it's a Chinese way to express disapproval or contempt, just to ignore someone. Um, is it still an issue today? I don't know that. I, am, I think, for the most part, the issue in general has has died down. Um, the interesting comparison to make is if you compare it with NBA and the NBA was it the Houston Rockets chairman or CEO he made the comment supporting Hong Kong. I mean NBA itself was basically taken off the air. The thing I noticed straight away, I mean, I'm not, I can speak Chinese pretty fluently but my reading's not that good, but I did see the Arsenal Weibo, I saw their comment and I don't know, the, I can't remember the exact wording, but what they said in Chinese and what they said in English was very different. And I think that was a little bit disingenuous because people in this day and age, in the global world we live in, people are going to notice that. And I think that made Arsenal look really two-faced. It looked, made them look like they were saying one thing to the Chinese side to placate them. Then it was saying another thing to the British or even the international side who think that Ozo should be able to say whatever he likes. So in that regard, I think Arsenal came out of it looking pretty bad. Whatever their position is, I mean, it's one thing to say that Arsenal doesn't support political statements, but politics as a definition is very fluid. I mean, one man's politics is another man's everyday speech or something completely normal and talked about every day. So I think that's quite disingenuous. It does bring up some pretty interesting issues about the internationalisation of football clubs and how clubs kind of market themselves or how they communicate with their fans in different markets or different countries where people have really different values. I think this is going to be a really uh, more common problem in the future and this going to be a difficult one. And this kind of thing is absolutely bound to happen again. So I don't think Arsenal's handling of it was very good. Uh, I think they should just be honest. They should simply say that Ozil's a private citizen. He can say whatever he likes. Uh, and it's up to him to bear the consequences of that and to deal with the consequences of that. I think the argument that Ozil was left out of the team because of his views on China and what he'd said is one that certainly suits Ozil from a PR point of view. It makes him look like a, a, a champion of the downtrodden who's been punished for standing up for those who need it. Um, 
I would argue that that argument holds no water at all, really, because Ozil made his comments on the league situation on December 13th, which was about a week before Arteta was appointed. And he went on to start 11 of the next 12 Premier League matches for Arsenal after those comments. So if he was being punished by Arsenal for what he said about China, that punishment was delayed by three months for reasons I couldn't possibly suggest. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you, Sam. I think if you're going to respond to something like that, he's out of the team immediately, isn't he? Especially you've got the excuse of a new manager to, to almost hide it if that is the reason you're taking him out of the team. But Cameron hit the nail on the head. I think it it upset the club and left them a little bit red-faced, particularly in China. But do you respond to that by dropping a player who at the time was was cru- seen as crucial or certainly seen as important part of what Mikel Arteta wanted to do when he first came in? I, like you said, I don't think it holds much credence, to be honest. And there's no denying that Ozil was a really key part of Arteta's team for the first few months of Arteta's reign. He played a lot, he played well, and he looked like he was sort of refining his form. And then, of course, the pandemic hit and football came to a halt. And as we all know, it was a very different story following Project Restart in June. Um, and here we've got James Olley from ESPN again to talk us through a summary which once again pitched Ozil against his employers. Again, it's easily forgotten that, that Meza Ozil started all 10 Premier League games under Mikel Arteta before um, the lockdown. And, um, you know, so you can't really say that the Uyghur Muslim stance was, 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 was it because he played after it. Um, and you can't necessarily say Arteta from day one decided that, that you know, he wasn't he didn't. He didn't fancy him as a player. He obviously played with him. He knew him. You know, he knew he knew a lot about Mesut before he arrived. He'd be one of the few who he kind of had a had a good handle on in terms of his personality and what he could give the team. Um, it's hard when you look at the chain of events not to think that the pay cut was a really significant moment because not only did the vast majority of the squads take it, but Arteta was absolutely pivotal in convincing the players to get on board with it. And so what he was really trying to, 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 to drill home to them at that point was this is a, a seismic moment for the world, obviously, but in the football context for the club, these are going to be difficult financial months, maybe, maybe a year, maybe longer. Um, you know, and, and I need you to buy into being here uh, to the extent that it's going to hit you in the pocket. And, you know, when you only need to look at the rest of the Premier League and, and all the, the other clubs that went down the wage deferral route, you know, for Arsenal to get a pay cut, a 12.5% pay cut, a significant amount of money, um, to get the vast majority of the players on board with that took an awful lot of convincing. There were a lot of conversations. Hector Bellerin was the PFA representative for the squad, sort of represented the players. And I know, you know, and I think there's a lot of why Bellerin and, and plays a lot now. Not that I'm saying that he's, you know, his form's not deserving of it, but I think Arteta trusts him so much because of the bond that those two formed during that period. Um, and, Urza wasn't part of that. You know, he, he raised some legitimate concerns, I think, about where does the money go? Uh, you know, how will that affect new signings? Will they have to come in and will they be on the same cut? Um, you know, 
a lot of people make a lot about money with Ozil because of what he earns, but you know he has given away that money and more since uh, in the charity work that he does, working with um, with, with helping feed children in, in, in various charities across North or through his charitable enterprise across various sites in North London, in fact, in London as a whole. Um, so it wasn't really about, I don't want to give some of my money back. It was about that he felt that there wasn't enough of a, a clear indication about why it was a cut, not a deferral, and where the money would go. Um, and I think there was also a bit of a... Um, a rejection of the idea that, that Arteta could coerce everybody into just doing this on behalf of the board. And um, I think as a result of that, their relationship hasn't recovered. He hasn't been in a squad since, um, you know, you, I understand that there is an argument to say from a purely footballing context that he doesn't fit. Again, we're talking about Emery and the high press and, and you know, trying to, trying to, really inject some intensity into the advanced positions. That isn't Mezzo's or strength. I think even he deep down would admit that, um, you, you know, now that they've started, they weren't playing with a number 10 for quite a long time. Now they are playing with a number 10. Uh, you look at what Emil Smith-Rowe's brought to that position, Joe Willock, when he's, when he's played there, you know, it's, it's legs, it's running. It's, there's more to those two lads than that. I think Smith-Rowe's done really well, actually, but you know, he's not, he, you can't possibly say he's the same creative talent as Mezzo's. I mean, he just, he just isn't. Uh, certainly not yet anyway um, and so to argue that just for footballing reasons you wouldn't even have him in the squad you know you think how bad it was pre-Christmas this sort of you know the lack of creativity in the team the lack of goals are you seriously trying to tell me that from a purely footballing reason forget every other context that it wouldn't have been worth every now and again to chuck Mesut Ozil on for 20 minutes when you're losing the game I mean, it, it, that that doesn't stack up. Yes, you can argue he's not part of my first eleven. He might not. He might not have adapted. He might not have done this, that, and the other. For what I understand, he's trained well. I don't think um, he's he's sort of kicked off as much as maybe some other players might have done in that situation. And this isn't, you know, the way that he wants his his Arsenal career to end. I think he wants to go out on a high um, or, or go out playing. I think he wants to, you know, he wants to make some appearances um, again before his contract runs out or, or he leaves in January. But it's looking very unlikely that that's going to happen. But I just think if you go back, you know, it's a, com it's a complex issue. But I think if you look at the chronology of events, it's hard not to think that the pay cut and the way that that happened was, was probably the final straw for their, for their relationship. Sadly or not, depending on your take on the whole Mesut Ozil situation, he's not going to play for the club again. He's not going to be a big send-off. He's not going to leave with a bang, but with a whimper. We're now actually joined by James Olley just to discuss the ins and outs of, of his move to Venabache. We've seen all these social media posts. He's really looking forward to it. Uh, it's all set to be announced over the weekend, we believe. So, yes, James, could you just talk us through how the move came about from the club's perspective and from the players' perspective? Yeah, well, you know, he he's had interest from Fenerbahce for a long time, but the, the, the issue there really was that they couldn't afford to do the deal. Um, there was no way they could afford to do anything close to the wage that he, you know, that he was on at Arsenal. Um, and my understanding was that for a long time, as it's been kind of torn about what his next move was going to be, I think he thought as, as, 
as the highs and lows have been documented on this podcast, you know, as much as that has happened, I think he still thought even probably into the back end of last year that there would be a some sort of chance that he might be able to play again, that he would see out the final six months and, and you know, and, and maybe play for the club again. But clearly, you know, the club have taken a very strong stance and it got when it got to January and he was able to talk directly to other clubs, um, I think it had become clear quite quite brutally that that this was it. It was either, you know, you are going to sit uh, for another six months and do nothing or, or or go and, you know, try and find a team to go and play. So um, once that became clear, the, the two options that were in the running were, were, were Fenerbahce and, and, and DC United. I know that another MLS club, in fact, I think a couple of MLS clubs tried to start conversations with, um, uh, as it was Camp, uh, sort of at the beginning of January but I think they'd already got quite a long way down the line with DC United DC United it was first reported by the Washington Post in August 2019 that they were looking at him so again those conversations have sort of been um, going along rumbling along in the background for a while um, and so it eventually became a choice between Fenerbahce and DC United and as I say he was he was torn for quite a long period of time and and I think He's decided in the end to go back to a you know a country that obviously his roots are there. His grandparents came emigrated from there to Germany. Um, he's got you know an affinity with the club, and significantly talks moved with Arsenal to a stage where they pay up the majority of his contract now, so he could go this month. And that the sort of financial aspect, that big financial hurdle for Fenerbahce, was removed. Um, and and the deal could be done for him to go to Turkey. I know he's still getting a nice payoff from Arsenal, but we almost have to commend him to a level for for not just resting on his laurels and sitting for six months. It seemed that once the writing was on the wall, he was more than happy to to start looking for another club and and picking Fenerbahce over the MLS, where you know more commercial. He's got more commercial aspects of his of his life over there. It would have been seen as an easier move. So, do we are there reasons we should commend him on on finally taking the step to leave? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, you know, he's, I I think, as I say, up until maybe even as late as November, I think they were, you know, the, the sort of Ozil camp were quite adamant that he was going to see his deal out almost no matter what happened. Um, but I think there's sort of been a realisation that, you know, another six months of, you know, of just sitting around doing nothing, basically, in terms of in a football sense, is just not good for anyone. And um, look, I mean... I don't think we can laud him financially because he's still getting a, he's still getting a huge payoff. And it's also important to remember that the MLS door hasn't necessarily closed for him. He could have a couple of years in Turkey and still go and play in the MLS. He's got that, you know, it's not as if pace is, is, has ever been a, a sort of major attribute of his game by any stretch. So it's, it's more the speed of thought and the, you know, the sort of intelligence in his play that you think would endure into his mid late thirties. Um, that would play well in the MLS, which is, you know, with all due respect to that division, is is not of the same calibre as, as the top leagues in Europe. So, um, I, I just think it's a, it's it's not the ideal way he wanted to go out. You you know, he obviously wanted to play again, but I think it's just better to draw a line under it for all parties because it had just become a corrosive situation for everybody. The club, you know, the club didn't want to have somebody on their books earning that much who was essentially on the sidelines using his social media presence to kind of, under, maybe not undermine, but certainly to sort of just chip away at 
the, 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 the sort of unity and the, and the attempt to move beyond the Urzel era, if you like, that Arteta is trying to deliver. And for the player himself, you know, he, fundamentally, I think he still he just wants to play, you know, and 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 he'll get that chance now. I think that's that's one of the things, isn't it? As well, you you would always want to look to a player with that reputation, with that wage, that can almost not not drag a team up, but the team when Wenger left, when he was still there, was in decline. But when they had those years post Wenger. You should be looking to players like Mesut Ozil to be the ones that can drag you still into the Champions League. You know, kicking and screaming. But look at that Europa League final. He got hooked for Joe Willock. You know, it's all, all due respect to Joe Willock, but that was probably one of the nadirs of, of his of his time at Arsenal. So when you're relying on him really to provide, he he really didn't deliver the goods, did he? So just finally, one and just a quick one word from both of you: Will Arsenal miss Mesut Ozil? I'll come to you first, Sam. Just yes or no, please. No. And James? Not now, no. Thank you to Sam and James, and much like Mesut Ozil's Arsenal career, that is the end of our podcast. I'd like to thank all of our contributors and you, our listeners. Do follow us on Twitter at The Arsenal Beat, where we share articles written by The Beat, run polls and give results to our predictor game, Beat the Beat. Subscribe to the podcast via your preferred platform and do listen to our regular shows. Our next special episode will be released in late February and I can exclusively reveal here that it will be an in-depth look at Arsenal's academy talent. Stay safe. Stay safe.